0: Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of God Me and I, in the book of Haggai this morning, chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. and These are the words of God. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Thank you, Father, for this time you have given to us to rest and worship, to be fed by your word and at this table. Now in the preaching of your word, have your way with us by your Holy Spirit. Encourage and strengthen your people, your children. Instruct, exhort, admonish, Lord, make us more into the image of your Son, for we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, thank you for your prayers. Wonderful to be back with you. Um, I had this uh, sermon prepared, you might have seen in the announcements last week, so I've had an extra week to let it marinate and meditate on it, so watch out. We're in the season of Advent. Advent is the season of waiting and longing. It's a season of waiting and longing. It's what Advent means. It leads up to the celebration of the incarnation, the coming of God in the flesh. It, It is fulfilled in Christmas. Traditionally, though, it is not just a waiting and longing that the church celebrates or reflects on with regard to waiting for Christmas, the first coming, the first Advent, but also a season and waiting and longing for the second coming of our God, when Jesus returns for the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the consummation of his kingdom in full. So as we practice this season of Advent, it is a preparation for the celebration of Christmas and remembering of uh, the incarnation of God becoming flesh, of Emmanuel. But at the same time as you celebrate Advent, it should be a waiting and longing for that final consummation, that second coming, when Jesus Christ will establish and finally bring forth the fullness of his kingdom upon this earth in the resurrection of the dead, in the judgment of all men, and the established, uh, consummated kingdom of God. So Advent is the season of waiting and longing because the world was not right, and because the world is not right. And Advent is also the season of faithful longing, faithful longing because we have been promised that God did and is making all things right. And in, in in this book, in this uh, book of the prophet by prophet Haggai, we we see him uh, speak of this advent, of this longing, and of this promise of fulfillment that is coming. There was a great longing in Haggai's day. Haggai was a prophet along with Zechariah, who came during the post-exilic time. That means you know, it, it, after the. Uh, after Israel was taken off into exile, and then when they returned to build the temple again, that's known as the post-exilic time. And during that time, the, the uh, temple was rebuilt, temple having been destroyed uh, by Babylon, and then and now it's being restored and being built up. The first temple was built by Solomon and had been destroyed when the people were carried into exile in, uh, into Babylon. After 70 years, King Cyrus issued a decree, probably 539-ish B.C., and the Jews um, were able to return and rebuild the temple. In fact, he commanded them to go and to take some of the, uh, of the uh, treasures of the previous temple to take them back and to rebuild the temple. They built the altar and the foundations of the temple, we're told, in Ezra and Nehemiah. But then life distracted them, and they stopped. And they gave themselves to building their own homes and businesses, It's now some 19 years later since they have been sent back, and the word of the Lord comes to Haggai. So nearly two decades pass, and then Haggai comes. And it begins in the book of Haggai in in chapter 1, where we hear the word of the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? And he goes on in this first oracle to call on them to return to finish the work of building the temple. That's why they've been sent. That's the first oracle. And that's, that, that comes. There are four oracles in the book of Haggai. And our section comes at the end of the second oracle, chapter 2. In, in this oracle, Haggai... Um, It is answering the concerns of the older Israelites who remembered how glorious Solomon's temple had been compared to the second temple being built. Solomon's temple was one one of the wonders of the world, it was known as. And, uh, in, and in Haggai here, in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we, we read, In the seventh month of the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? So, so maybe people who have maybe 80 in their 80s or even 90 years old would remember the days before they had been carried off into exile, and they would remember the former glory of Solomon's temple. And they're seeing this second temple being built. While they're grateful for it, it's not what it was. In fact, in Ezra chapter 3, we read, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. The temple was a big deal. The temple was a big deal to the people of God. To go to the temple and sacrifice at the temple was was your only opportunity to come as God's people into the very presence of God. And even then, you could only do so through the priest. And even then, only through the high priest once a year into the temple. But to be at the temple, to see the glory, to see the glory that, uh, that came forth from the silver and the gold was, was a picture, not, not necessarily just of riches and wealth, but a picture of the glory of the Lord as he, as, as he shone down upon and in and among his people. And it wasn't as glorious as it had been before. And so some of the older people wept and they longed for that glory fully to return. And others were shouting for joy. They hadn't seen the first temple and they're shouting for joy that a temple again is being built and they're being returned to Jerusalem, the place where God would dwell with them. And so, this, this, is, what, this is the this context of this second oracle. The Lord tells the leaders and the people not to fear. He says, for his spirit is still with them. It's verses 4 and 5. The second temple, it turns out, the second temple, this temple that they're building, is not really the second temple. He says, wait, wait a little bit, and he will shake all of creation again. Verse 6. And he says the nations will all be shaken and they shall come to the desire of all nations or, or possibly the desire of all nations shall come as it's translated in the uh, authorized version. When, when he comes, when they come to him, it will fill the temple with glory in verse 7. The silver and gold make a temple glorious, but all of that is actually the Lord's glory. It's a picture of, of God's glory, verse 8. Verse 8. The glory of the true second temple will be greater than Solomon's. And maybe more importantly, the peace, the shalom, will be greater still, verse 9. Shalom is a play really off the word or used in that word Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And and this this word play is picturing this city as a place not just of peace, not just of peace like uh, in some kind of Eastern mysticism peace, but rather no more at war no matter no no more at war with god eventually no more at war among people shalom has the idea of soundness and and fatness and completeness and contentedness and this was the promise when you were with god when you were with god when you're before him in all of his glory it was a glory of warmth and satisfaction of awe and reverence of completeness and contentment, of purpose and, and, and a sense of, of destiny with God and with God forever. One thing I want to, I want to mention here about the, the passage uh, and about the phrase, this, the desire of all nations, if you look at verse 7, if you have a Bible, the New King James and, and most of the translations translate, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. Uh, Hebrew scholars will say that the, the uh, translation of this phrase, they shall come to the desire of all nations, is a little ambiguous and, and really is ambiguous in a couple of ways. Is it that they shall come to the desire of nations or is it that the desire of the nations shall come to them? It kind of can go either way. Uh, the other issue is whether or not the desire of all nations is, is, is a person, is, is that pointing directly to the Messiah Or is it the desire of nations will come to the Messiah? That is, the elect, the called ones, are going to be all swarming from all nations to the Messiah himself. It can go either way. And I think the answer is yes. (laughs) It's all fulfilled in that. Christ is our head. Christ is the desire of all nations. And we are the body of Christ. We are to be that desire to all nations as well so it all comes together um, in in that way. I think maybe possibly that ambiguity is there on purpose. So the the second temple period then, when when that second temple was finished, the time of Nehemiah, that it continued for centuries. Remember that's in the 500s BC when that is finished. In 19 BC, roughly 20 years before the birth of Christ, Herod began to refurbish and glorify this temple. King Herod. That would be the Herod that would later on call for the slaughter of the children, um, two years old and under in Bethlehem, to, to save him from some king that was purported by, by some magi from the east to have come and been born in Bethlehem. Herod, in great fear, has those children slaughtered. It's that Herod that begins the work of the, of the temple. Um, and, and Herod is not a Jew. He's known as the king of the Jews. He's been established there under the Roman rule, but he is not a a Jew. He's an Edomite. He's an Edomite, and he's a wicked man. He's a wicked and perverted man. And this Herod, though, wants to make the temple glorious, far more glorious than Solomon's temple. And so he goes on um, a a great work of rebuilding and expanding the, the temple. He's going to glorify the temple. This wicked, perverted Edomite is going to glorify the temple. Well, the construction would continue on through Jesus' life. So when Jesus is walking through the temple in those days, there's all kinds of construction projects with regard to that temple still going on. And it continues beyond his death and resurrection all the way till eighty AD, AD 63. So in AD 63, that temple is finally completed. Only seven years later, the Romans will completely destroy it and not leave a stone left upon another. That was Herod's attempt to bring glory. He made it clear, um, Jesus, though, made it very clear um, in his life and especially as he came to cleanse the temple, that he, in fact, was the true new temple. We heard in the call to worship that in John chapter 1, it says that um, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the place that God met until the time that they established themselves on Mount Moriah, and, and, and a temple was built there, and, and on Mount Moriah, also referred to as Mount Zion, that, that temple was then, uh, was then made. Jesus says... Not only does John say that, that Christ would come and, and, and tabernacle with him, Jesus says, I am the temple. You see, this this second temple is not the real second temple. The real second temple has come in the flesh. And throughout this Gospel of John, we, we see this temple imagery come up over and over again. In Christ, in addition, in Christ, we are the temple with him. We are told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Living stones, we're told. Living stones with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And so it's worth considering how this prophecy in Haggai points both to Christ, to the Messiah, and his ministry, as well as to his church, to us, and our ministry in him. And so that ambiguity is the desire of the nations Christ. Or is the desire of the nations the ones whom Christ has called and brought into himself. Which one is it that, that is that is coming to receive and, and reflect and redound the glory of God? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. After Christ's ascension and the outpouring of the spirit. The saints um, in, in the first century are persecuted and they must flee Jerusalem. I keep saying Jerusalem to remind you this is the city of Shalom. This is the city of peace. In the city of peace, when the Holy Spirit falls and the church is established in in these first generations by many, many Jewish believers, they are persecuted. We, of course, read about these persecutions in the book of Acts. We read about Saul, um, who who is out persecuting, killing, um, uh, sending out, removing people from their homes, from their businesses, from their livelihood, imprisoning them and killing them. This, is, this was the work of the Pharisees and of the, Jude, uh, and, and of the Judeans who, who hated Christ's followers. They're persecuting that church in the city of peace, in the place where the glory of God's people is to be. And the people are dispersed. They have to run. They're scattered all, um, all throughout uh, Judea and, and even beyond as they seek to find safety in other places. And in the midst of this dispersion, written about the time that the temple is finished, maybe a couple of years after the time the temple is finished, maybe you had been you 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 have not had after years and years you have not had the chance to go to the finished temple. You are a Jew, but you become a Christian. You still have Jewish roots. You still consider yourself a Jew. You consider yourself a follower of the Messiah, and and you can't go to the temple. And in the midst of the persecution, you, you can't, you, you're no longer um, able to offer up sacrifices. You understand, you, you probably understand you're not supposed to, but maybe you're tempted to go back to that glory, that glory that is in that temple, and, and all the rituals and celebrations that took place in that temple. And so, Paul, or another writer, writes the book of the letter to the Hebrews, the letter to the Christian Hebrews. And in that letter, he says to them, Christ is greater than all of it. The Christ that you serve is greater than, and his priesthood is greater than the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood. His sacrifice is once for all. Those priests have to continually offer sacrifices. um, uh, The the covenant has been renewed in Christ, and, and there's this greater now unveiling of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. You do not have to go back there. Jesus Christ is greater. Yeah, but... We're in this little house church, hidden away in this little town. Your temple is greater. Your temple is more glorious. In fact, it is in your temple, the writer of the book of Hebrews will say, that the accomplishment of Haggai chapter 2 is taking place. In that little group that is meeting. In that little church. And then in churches scattered throughout the world over this gospel age of hope time. In the midst of this dispersion, then, there is this temptation to long for the old temple to return. And this is when the author of Hebrews applies the text of Haggai. In Hebrews chapter 12, remember, remember, temples are like mountains. They are places where you go to meet with God. And in building the temple, after the tabernacle had traveled, after they had met, first of all, on Mount Sinai, What had happened on Mount Sinai? There had been great tremblings and earthquakes and lightnings and a dark cloud, and the people were afraid. And they heard the voice of God, and they received the the law of God, and they saw the glory of God. And when they traveled, they took, in essence, Mount Sinai with them in the tabernacle until the time that that tabernacle was then established in its fullness on Mount Moriah, on Mount Zion. Where, the, where Solomon's temple is eventually built. And so going to the temple was, in essence, going. It was, it was like fleeing Egypt every time and going to the place of freedom, to the place of the glory of God, to the place where the earth would be shaken and everything would change. You see, when, when we were brought out of Egypt, they would say, when we were brought out of Egypt, the, wor- the world was turned completely upside down. For us, we were free now. We were God's people now. We would be the people who would, re- who would show forth the glory of God to all of the nations. And going to the temple and going through the sacrifices and the celebrations was a remembrance and a partaking in all of that. And Christian Jews couldn't go there anymore. And the writer of the Hebrews says, it's good you're not going there. In fact, he gives a couple of stern warnings. Don't go back there. Because we're just a few short years from the fiery judgment of God, literally, upon that, upon that city. But then he says something incredible about our worship. He says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You've come to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And then he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape, who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. And now he will allude to Haggai. But now he promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven." Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He says, now... He alludes to the fact that not only earth, but also heaven is being shaken. Now, how is heaven being shaken at this this time period? Well, heaven was being shaken because now a new king was sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. Heaven was completely changed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension and his enthronement. Heaven was shaken. And all of the earth would be shaken in the worship of the King of Kings as well. So Advent is the season of longing, and Christmas is the celebration of the desire of all nations coming to fulfill that longing. Christ is the answer, then, to all the longing of your heart. That's, that's what you should see here. Christ, Jesus Christ is the answer to all the longings of your heart. And Jesus Christ is the answer to the longing of all the nations. The desire of all nations. The thing that all the nations ultimately are looking for. Ultimately know they are missing. Ultimately are trying to fulfill with idols and false worship and and, um, self-centered worship. But it doesn't satisfy. And um, And it leads to envy. It leads to wars. It leads to malice. It leads to murder and destruction. It doesn't satisfy. When Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised, Simeon was a a man who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And it says, So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in shalom, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all nations. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus truly was the answer. And as God would have it, that longing is being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is spreading. The nations and all things which have been made by ungodly means and ungodly hands are being shaken such that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. By definition, after the shaking of the nations, after the shaking of the word of, by the word of God, by the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the shaking, what is left are things eternal, things that cannot be shaken, things that are established and remain. And this shaking takes place, we are told, as we come to the new temple, as we come to the mountain of God, as we come before him to hear his voice. And as we partake with him as his body in being his voice, in our singing, in our prayers, in the declaration of his word, to all nations, to all peoples, in our worship. It shook at Sinai. It shakes much further and much deeper at Zion. Now, if that is true, if this is, if this is a service... Of, that is taking place to shake the nations. It is worthwhile considering two things. Why in the world don't we see the nations shaken in the way that it seems like we, we would see? And secondly, why in heaven's name do we come together in worship in our nation in the way we generally do? How, how can we then come and worship? in such a light and breezy and irreverent manner that we are known for. Again, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, because we're going to need grace to be in the presence of this holy shaking. Let us have grace by which we may serve, that word should be worshipped, That we may worship God acceptably. Which, of course, means it's possible to worship God unacceptably. That we may worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Do you know in the history of the church... What has happened during times of great awakenings, great revivals, great reformations in the worship of God's people? Almost without exception, two things accompany a great great revival, a great reformation, a great work of God. And that is the return of people, the people of God, singing exuberantly. And the second is a reverent fear. A reverent, holy fear of God with much rejoicing in the assembly of God's people. It's something that the Spirit of God gives. We can't do a dog and pony show to make this happen. It is something that we long to see happen. It's a a shaking, a shaking in our midst that changes us because it is not just the world out there that needs to be shaken so that the things that are shaken are removed. We need to be shaken. We need to be shaken so that only the things which will not be shaken ever remain. Another way of looking at what is going on here in our worship service um, is a phrase that comes from from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I want you to look around and see yourselves as the aristocracy of a nation. You are the aristocracy of this generation. Listen to his words. He says, if the nation did not know it, the saints in a nation are the aristocracy of that nation. Those who fear God are the very soul and marrow and backbone of a nation. For their sakes, God has preserved many a nation. For their sakes, God has preserved many a nation. For their sakes, he gives unnumbered blessings. Ye are the salt of the earth. The earth were putrid without them. Ye are the light of the world. The world would be dark without them. We're the salt of this nation. We are the light of this dark generation. We are the aristocracy Of our people. And so we must receive a shaking that we might shine, that we might not lose our saltiness, that we might truly be the people of God, worthy of being before Him. He must do a work. We must come, and it must come. We must come before Him with grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, that He might change and truly shake us. What the word of God teaches us is that in the preaching of the gospel, the spirit shakes these things off. What does he shake off? In the preaching of the gospel, the spirit shakes off unbelief. How does a man move from being an unbeliever to a believer? By the spirit-wrought word of God, preaching, of, of a preacher who preaches the gospel. And says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But those are just Words unless God by his spirit takes them and shakes a heart, opens up eyes, does his work. The things that are shaken by the spirit are also pride and rebellion. I am a self-made man. I can keep my religion at arm's length. I can serve a little. I can follow sometime. But I will still be the master of my destiny. And I will determine when and if I am going to serve and obey right now. And in these circumstances. And the word of God and the spirit of God shakes us. And shakes it off. In the singing of God's praises. In the giving glory to his name. In joining with the people of God to confess our sins. In hearing the words of absolution. In coming to this table of fellowship, of peace, of shalom. God shakes his people. He shakes his aristocracy to make them noble, to reflect his glory. And they remove their rebellion and their self-justifying pride and arrogance. The desire of all nations shall come, Haggai says. The word of the Lord says that they shall come. And so preachers need to learn to preach with devout assurance of success. A preacher on his own has no no ability to move a heart. Not deeply, not spiritually. He might be able to move sentiment. He might be able to move emotions. He cannot touch the heart of a person. But God says the desire of nations shall come. And they shall come in the preaching of the gospel, in the sharing of the good news, as it spills out from here to his people to go out and be that light and be that salt. God will have his way. God will draw in his elect. God has his people out there and he will use his word by his means, in his time and by his ways to draw all nations to himself. The earth shall be as full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The peck of leaven will spread to the whole lump. The small rock will grow to become the mountain of the Lord. That rock that Daniel said would, would break down the kingdoms of men, shattering them, would then grow to become a mountain, a temple, a place where God and his glory would reside, a place where his people are, a place who the people themselves are. And your salvation, your salvation, will be made complete as well. In your life, he will shake off those things which can be shaken. Your anxiety, your fear, your unbelief, your temper, your lust, your covetousness. He will shake it all off. He is going to finish that work and, make, and complete that which he has begun. He will winnow you, separating the wheat from the chaff. He will heat you up and purge away your dross. He is identifying what is permanent. He is identifying what is permanent, and that is your salvation. The sins of men shall be shaken, but the salvation of men cannot be. What did he say? Verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. You are that silver and you are that gold, and he is going to heat you up and take that dross off, and he is going to make you glorious because you are his temple. And he will not have a filthy temple. He will not have an impure temple. Your justification is sure. You are rock solid sure in your justification. Having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Having called on his name and been saved. Having been sealed by his spirit. And your sanctification. Your future sanctification and glorification. Is just as sure. The sins of men can be shaken. But the salvation of men cannot be. All your troubles, everything going on in your life, every single trouble is a part of that shaking. And when that trouble is done, when that shaking has been completed, all that will be left will be that which cannot be shaken. And of course, all this shaking ends with the second coming of the Lord, the end of our final enemy, death, and the resurrection of the body your body, and every body resurrected unto the final judgment of God and the consummation of all creation. And we cannot imagine, we are told by the Lord, we cannot imagine what that final will be. Doug Wilson says the salvation of the world is an eschatological earthquake, a profound earthquake in which every tawdry thing is absolutely destroyed, reduced to powder, and every noble thing remains standing, revealed for what is an everlasting glory. We long with all of creation for the revealing of the sons of God, for the revealing of believers for what and who they truly are. For what and who we truly are. Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. You have no idea who you are. That's that's what that means. You have no idea who we are. But we have an earnest longing to see the glory that resides in us, in the temple, in the people of God. This temple will ultimately and finally bring in that perfect peace, that shalom, which the angels declared at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And Jesus promised his disciples even in the tumultuous days of shaking that existed in his day and in ours. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Remember the words of Haggai. I have overcome the world. So Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Father, your word promises that the coming of the Messiah shook the nations, and that shaking continues even now as you work out your glorious plan of salvation and a temple the people of God, more glorious than any temple ever was. Glorify your people, and in doing so, glorify your Son, and let the nations see their greatest desires fulfilled in Jesus and come into his glory by grace through faith. Do this to the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.